You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Well, good morning and welcome again to our gathering here at City Light South. So good to be here. We're going to jump into the Word this morning. We are in the book of 1 Samuel. We're in the series called Advent Tales, and the tale we're looking at today is probably one of the most familiar tales in the entire Bible. It's a starring, kind of the main character, is one of the most famous shepherds in all the Bible, a shepherd who would go on one day to be a king, a man called David. David is the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, who we looked at their story last week. Um, David is also one of the ancestors of Jesus, perhaps the most important or the most famous one. And so the tale we're looking at today is going to look forward to the story of Christmas, the story of the young king born in the very same city, um, visited by shepherds at his birth. This story that we're going to look at today is one that has been told time and time again, both inside and outside the church, except it's one of the most familiar. And so you probably know the basic plot of the story. This is the story of David and Goliath. That's what we're looking at. So if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17, um, and that's where we're going to be for this morning. The story is, you know, if you know the basic plot. If you haven't heard it, which I'm, most of us have, young David is almost accidentally kind of thrown onto the battlefield. He stumbles onto it, and he, he overhears this giant, this enemy Philistine giant Goliath. He's threatening, taunting the Israelites, who are David's people. And no, no one is willing to fight him. No one's willing to go man-to-man uh, with this guy. So David decides to have a go. And everybody assumes he's going to be slaughtered, but instead, using only a slingshot and one stone, David kills the giant uh, with a shot to the forehead, and he is instantly the unexpected hero. But what is this story really about? Is it the story of courage in the face of great danger? Is it the story of overcoming incredible odds to win an unlikely victory? There's lots of books that have been written, sermons have been preached about this story with this basic point. If you have just a little bit of faith, a little bit of courage like David, you can slay your giants. Whatever you're facing, whatever problem it is, no matter how big it is, you can conquer it. You can overcome if you have a little bit of faith and and, and a slingshot like David. And, you know, whether it's money problems, relationship problems, self-esteem problems, whatever it is, you pick that analogy, pick up the stone of faith, chuck it at the giant, and he'll come tumbling down. Um, Some of you know that we are, this is, uh, we're affiliated with a group called Acts 29, Global Church Planning Network. The executive director of Acts 29 is a uh, pastor in America by the name of Matt Chandler, one of the most famous sermons he's ever preached, and it's all been all over YouTube. This was now like 15 years ago. Um, he, he was calling out this sort of bad way of preaching or bad way of reading the David and Goliath story, and, and he's saying, look, the Bible's not you, about you. You're not David. Don't put yourself in the story. David, this story is about something entirely different than how, you all, than how it's often preached. I mean, it's a good corrective to those of us who read the Bible and put ourselves in the center. We just kind of go to it randomly looking for inspiration uh, or a special word to me without understanding and studying and treating the Bible on its own terms. 
So first, we have to seek to understand the story as to why it's written in the Bible in the first place, why it's preserved, why the Holy Spirit preserved this story. And then what are the universal principles that are contained in this story and how does it connect us and point us to the overall story of the Bible, the story where Jesus comes as the ultimate hero? One of the unfortunate side effects, though, of this, this criticism of kind of bad preaching on David and Goliath or bad um, analogies is that I think sometimes it can make us as Christians less confident to, to read the Bible. We're like, well... If, if, if all these preachers and authors are getting it wrong, how likely is it that we will, as just normal people, get it right? And I get that. And so what I want to try to do this morning is put some of any of those kind of fears to rest. The point of the David and Goliath story is, 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 is not, it's obviously not about how God's going to get you or me out of debt. That's not the point. But I do believe there is a sense in which we absolutely must put ourselves in the shoes of David and imitate his heart and, and, and maybe even his actions. And, and by God's grace, you can do that. I can do that. We can do that by grace. But first, we have to understand the story on its own terms. Like, why is it in the Bible at all? And how does it point us to Christ? So this morning, as we walk through this familiar story... I'm going to address those two questions. Why is this in the Bible, and how does it point us to Christ? And then I'm going to wrap up with three ways that I believe that Christians are called to be like David as he is like Christ. Join me as we pray. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a true story from history, and thank you that we can learn things from this story. Thank you for your servant, David. Thank you for the, the only one in the whole Bible who's called a, a man after your own heart. Help us as we look at this passage, as we read it, as we apply it. Would you change our hearts? Would you make our hearts more like David's, more like Christ, more like your heart? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bible, 1 Samuel 17. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to be working our way gradually all the way to the end of the chapter, but we'll start here in verse 12. I'm reading from the CSB. Now, David was the son of the Epathrite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war and their names were Eliab the firstborn, Abinadab the next, and Shammah the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Okay, a little background context here. David is the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, um, and Jesse was the son of Obed, and Obed was the son of Ruth and Boaz, who we looked at last week. He had already, at this point in chapter 17, David had already been chosen to be the next king the next king of Israel, after King Saul. Saul was the first king in the history of Israel, and he was chosen by God, and he started off well, and then he got kind of too big for his own boots, and he threw it all away. He decided he knew better than God how to be king. 
he started disobeying God's instructions. And so because of Saul's arrogance and his disobedience, God rejected Saul as king and instead chose one of Jesse's sons, one of his eight sons, who lived in Bethlehem. And the older sons, if you know the story, were taller than David. They were perhaps fitter or more likely to be chosen as king than David. They were experienced fighters. David was none of those things. He was a shepherd. He seems the least likely of all of the eight brothers. And yet God said to the man, Samuel, who was choosing the next king, he said, humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. David's heart is going to be very different than Saul's. And that's on full display in this battle with Goliath. So David's already been chosen to be the next king, but no one knows this yet outside of David's own family and Samuel, the one who chose him. One more piece of background. David had already met Saul before, before this episode on the battlefield. Um, He was invited by Saul's officials to come to the palace and play the lyre. And the lyre is kind of an ancient cross between a harp and a guitar, if you can imagine that, it's, uh, he, David would come to Saul's palace. He was very upset, um, and he was, he was actually tormented by an evil spirit, the Bible tells us. And when David would play for him, it would calm him down. And that's why it says in verse 15 that David was going back and forth between Saul and tending his father's sheep. That's why his father trusts him also then to be a messenger, to find out what's going on with the battle with his older brothers on the battlefield. All right, let's keep reading, starting in verse 16. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in the battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. All right, let's pause here and notice a few things. First, verse 16. Here we meet Goliath, who's already been introduced earlier uh, in chapter 17 as the nine-foot, nine-inch-tall Philistine champion fighter who began to daily would come out and call out and taunt the army and challenge them to a one-to-one, man-to-man fight to the death. And the stakes were total victory for whoever won, for the winning side, and then slavery and defeat for the losing side. Verse 16, we learn that Goliath's taunting of the Israelites went on for 40 days and nights, which in the Bible is always connected to a time of testing for God's people. This was a test, a test of faith. And we're going to see who passes that test and who doesn't. Noah, if you remember on the ark, he was there on the ark 40 days, 40 nights of rain. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Later on, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days being tested 40 days here a test to see who has faith in God and who doesn't. David here is obeying his father's instructions. 
bringing supplies to his brothers and hopefully bringing back a good report. He's been there before, but this time is different because no sooner does he speak with his brothers, he hears the voice. He hears Goliath ring out his usual words, his usual taunts, his mocking. And the Israelite army, instead of standing there with confident faith in God, they retreat back in fear. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 25. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? And just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding this is what, or that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here? He asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now? Protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to the others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. So the Israelites are afraid of Goliath, but David is not. He goes on a bit of a fact-finding mission here. First question he asks seems fair enough. What's the reward for killing this guy? What's in it? Well, in verse 25, they explain the reward. It's immense. Incredible wealth. A wife who happens to be the king's daughter. Amazing. And for his entire extended family, no more taxes ever. Seems like a pretty um, good offer there. And yet, even with all of that money and fame and power and prestige, all of that on the table, not one single person has taken up the offer. All the riches in the world won't mean a thing if Goliath chops off your head. And so the second question that David asks here is a bit more on the nose. He says, who does this guy, this Goliath, think he is? He can't talk to the armies of the living God like that. Surely not. And that's the question that the whole army, who knew the history of Israel, who knew about the Red Sea, who knew about all the battles in the wilderness, who knew about Jericho and the walls crumbling, uh, crumbling down just from them marching around. They knew all this. And so they should have been asking that very same question from day one. Who do you think you are, Goliath? Nine foot, nine inches tall, still not taller than the walls of Jericho, still not taller than the, the Red Sea walls of water that were on either side of us as we walk through. And yet they're still afraid. They'd forgotten who they were fighting for, and who was fighting for them. See, God was on their side, and he's not just a, a giant, a little bit taller than Goliath. He is the author of life itself. And David knows something. It's not the Israelites' name on the line. It's not just one battle. This is God's name on the line. And so not only is David hearing the taunting and the mocking and the Israelites hearing the taunting and the mocking, God is hearing the taunting and the mocking. And God, the God of Israel, will not be mocked. And David knows that. He's not filled with fear. Instead, he's filled with holy outrage. David's brothers hear his questions. 
And it's interesting to see their response. They're offended. And they, you know, who, who, you know, instead of looking at Goliath, David says, who do you think you are? They look at David. Who do you think you are? You're arrogant. You're evil. See, they project onto him their own sin, saying he's just being irresponsible. You left the sheep. That's where you should be, not here. Um, in reality, they're probably just, you know, brothers who are annoyed and jealous that David isn't afraid of the sky that everyone else seems to be afraid of. We've been doing a, a jigsaw puzzle at home um, this week, and sometimes I enjoy watching my kids struggle a little bit to find the perfect piece just so I can walk in and pick it up and go, it's right there. <laughs> Not that that happens. Um, but I think that's a little bit what's going on here. I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing Matt Chandler's voice in my head going, you're not David, stop it. David's brothers here reject him and accuse him of being evil in a way that's similar not only to Joseph's brothers, but all of the people who are opposed to Jesus all along the way. They called Jesus a drunk, a glutton, a lawbreaker, you name it, just for, ask, just for doing what the Father asked him to do. Sometimes righteous behavior and faith can be offensive to those who lack those things. David caused such a commotion with his question that he's about to get the attention of King Saul himself. Let's pick up in verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk. He's not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones uh, from the wadi and put them in his pouch, in his shepherd's bag. And then with the sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, in this scene, David goes from, I'm just here asking questions, figuring out what's going on, to actually offering to fight Goliath. In verse 32, he speaks these faith-filled words that should have been flowing from the mouths of the king. Every time you see Saul and David side by side in the Bible, you see this amazing contrast between an evil king and a good king. Uh, a, a king with an arrogant heart and a king with the heart of God. David says, look at your enemies. Don't be discouraged. I, I don't know if there are people in your life who, who have said those words to you, or maybe you've been that person to someone, but it's a powerful thing to, to walk into a situation or a space where there's fear, uh, 
and say, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. God's got this. It's going to be okay. And, and actually mean it. See, David, had mean, David knew what he was talking about because of his faith in God. And Saul looks at him and says, you can't do this. You're too young. You're too inexperienced. This guy, this is the LeBron James of giants we're, we're, you're looking at here. You're, and you, you're literally anyone else. You don't stand a chance. No one can defeat this guy. And notice how David responds. He doesn't say, you don't know me. He doesn't flex, although he kind of does it first. He says, I've gone to head-to-head with lions and hungry bears, stealing my dad's sheep, and I won. And Goliath will go down just like they did. But what makes that not a flex is what he says in the very next verse, in verse 37. He says this. He says, the Lord who rescued me. See who he gives the glory to, who he gives the credit to. This wasn't about me being strong. This wasn't about me being brave. This wasn't about me being young and stupid. No, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of this Philistine. All of David's small victories that he won, he knew were because of God. He had eyes to see and he has eyes to see the goodness of God, the power of God. And with those same eyes, he looks at Goliath and says, Saul, you're right. I cannot defeat this giant, but God can And I believe that he will. Saul doesn't know that kind of faith. He doesn't have that kind of faith. He can't relate to it. And he says, well, the Lord be with you. And then he grabs immediately for the spare armor and says, David, you got to put this on. Some people trust in armor. Some people trust in chariots and horses and human strengths and human smarts and human money. But those after God's own heart trust in the power of God to do what only God can do. And David approaches this battle not with ill-fitting armor, but with the weapons and tools he'd been using his whole life. A staff, a sling, stones. Let's keep going. Verse 41. The Philistine came closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog? that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. And then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. I have to stop here and point out just a couple of things. First, don't, let me hear, don't hear me say and don't hear the Bible be saying that David took no precautions whatsoever. He still has a, you know, a, a shield bearer go out in front of him. He has tools in his hand. He's not naive. He, he knew that his life was on the line, that there was real risk. He was young, but he was also in good shape. He's not the squeaky little junior asparagus, if you've seen the Tale recreation of this song. 
Goliath despised David for one reason. Because he believed not just that David was a little guy, he believed that no human could defeat him. He was the champion. He was absolutely undefeated. The key here, though, is that Goliath is not fighting just a mere human. David is not fighting with human strength. He says in verse 46, Today the Lord will hand you over to me. This is the Lord's battle. Which makes us think, well, maybe David was certain that he, he just knew that he was going to win. How did he know, though? Did God reveal it to him in a, in a dream in some supernatural way? The, the text doesn't tell us what was going on in David's head in this moment. All we know is that his faith is so strong in this moment that David is saying, it's not my name on the line. It's God's name on the line. That I'm going to defeat you, Goliath. I'm going to win this battle, not for me, not for my fame and my glory, but so that Everybody watching, the Philistines, the Israelites, the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel and that he is mighty to save. God was there in that moment. He was using David's youth and his inexperience to teach not only Goliath a lesson, but the entire Philistine army, the entire Israelite assembly, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And he is the one who will not allow his name to be mocked forever. Goliath and the Philistines are going to reap what they have sown. Verse 48. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from his sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Shuraim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had been seen going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as I live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. So this is the climax of the battle. David defeats Goliath with one expertly flung stone. And um, this is what the kids' Bibles tend to leave out. Um, The stone actually doesn't kill him, if you read the text carefully. It just knocks him out. David runs up and takes Goliath's sword and chops off his head. He finishes him off. Um, Goliath, the champion, is killed with the very thing that he trusted in, his own weapon. His arrogance and his strength were the cause of his death. And not only for him, but for the whole Philistine army who had been hiding behind him. And as soon as they fell, they ran away like mice. 
but not fast enough. See, Goliath is taken out of the picture, and, and what you have is now two armies evenly matched fighting over territory. And as soon as the Israelites had God in the picture fighting for them, there was no way that they could lose. Not even the strongest, meanest, and most brutal of all weapons could defeat him. And, and, and why David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem and his weapons back to his own tent, we don't know. We'll f- you'll find out later in the story if you keep reading in 1 Samuel, because Goliath's weapons show up again. Um, maybe it's more so that more people can see the victory that God had won. I guess that's why you would hold on to a trophy like that. Um, or it could be that David is starting to maybe get a little bit conceited himself. We'll, we'll see later on in David's story, which we don't have time to talk about in this series, um, that David is not perfect. He's a man after God's own heart, but he still faces temptations, um, and he doesn't pass every test with flying, flying colors. Whatever the case, though, we know that there's, from the foreshadowing of verse 55 of Saul inquiring about David, like if, you know, it's the little bit of the dun-dun-dun, like there's, gonna, there's a problem brewing here. This is not an innocent inquiry. This is like King Herod inquiring about Jesus, right? He's staring down decades, David is, of being chased around the wilderness by a jealous, demon-possessed Saul before he returns to Jerusalem as the rightful king. And in that time, his faith in God is going to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. So let's go back to our original questions. Why is this tale in the Bible? And how does it point us to Christ? Why do, we, why do I call this an Advent tale? Well, I'm going to answer those two questions by way of three points of application. You're not David, I'm not David, and we're not Jesus either. But there are some truths that we can learn from this story, truths that are there in the text, just as relevant and necessary for God's people today as the day that these events unfolded. So truth number one, your weakness makes room for God's strength. The anti-heroes in the story, Saul and Goliath, they have one thing in common. Both of them trust in human strength and in human technology to win battles. And they're thinking, nice guys finish last. You're only good, as good as your latest victory. Weak people are bothersome dogs who just get in the way. But David knew better. David knew that the only people able to fight for God are weak people. Because weak people are the only ones who look to God for help in the first place. Your weakness it may be a physical limitation. It might be inexperience. It, it, it can be any number of things. David's was inexperience. It was the rejection of his brothers. The question isn't what was his specific weakness that mattered. It's what did he do with that weakness? He was not there to prove himself or to hustle anyone. He, he leans into his weakness. He lets himself be small so that God can be big. Weakness is not about false humility where we, you know, deny our own skills or our own experience. Weakness, though, is an opportunity for us to lean into our own mortality, our own limitations, our own different circumstances, so that through you, through me, through ordinary people, through weak people, the world might see the strength and the power and the glory of God. God's power is made visible, not so much in what you're good at, not in your gift, 
Not in what comes easy to you, but often in the things that make you sad, tired, frustrated. Lean into those things so that other people can taste and see the grace of God poured out in your weakness. Truth number two is related. Your station in life, your unique situation, your station in life is the stage for your sanctification. Another way of saying this is that you cannot be anyone else than the person God made you to be. That was true for David, and it's true for you. David was a shepherd. He was the youngest son in the family. He, despite what his brother said, he wasn't chomping at the bit to join the battle. He was content being a shepherd. And there was plenty of danger there. He knew it was an important job. It just so happens that it was at the sheep station, tending the flock, that God prepared him for the battle that, ha- that he had to fight. And not only that, he had spent time in music lessons, learning to play the lyre. That prepared him for the palace. So parents, if you're paying for your kids to have lessons and it's a sacrifice, keep doing it. You never know. Kids, keep practicing, keep doing your chores. You never know what it might lead to. Because it's your unique station in life that God uses to grow you and to shape you into the, care, into the very image of Christ. You don't have to transform into someone else. You have to trust God in the midst of who you are. God doesn't call you to obey any of us, to be like Jesus, to share our faith, to resist sin, to be generous, and then not give us the means to do it. We're the ones that we're looking around at Saul's armor, and clearly, you know, we're too small for it. It doesn't fit right, and we think that we've failed. Because the world looks at us and says, no, you're not it. The fancy armor is not what David needed to win. It was all those boring nights watching those sheep, wondering if a bear was going to show up. Sometimes that kind of boredom, that kind of regular stuff that we do, that's what God is using to change you and prepare you. It's not somebody else's station, it's yours. God is working to make all of his people smell like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, have the heart of Jesus. The way he does it in you is unique to you and your circumstances. The Savior of the world, who with birth we celebrate in just a couple of weeks, he was born in humble circumstances, in a humble station. He grew up in Nazareth, which was the kind of place that everybody just wanted to leave. Nobody wanted to admit that they were from there. If you heard the accent, be like, oh, no. You know, you wanted just to move, move beyond it. And yet that was the place that the Savior of the world chose to grow up. He was rejected by his brothers and ultimately his own people. Like even the people that lived in Nazareth didn't like him. And yet he went on to fight the greatest battle that the world has ever seen, the battle against sin and death. And you know the, you know how, the outcome. He won. God has placed all of you exactly where he wants you to be to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your circumstances. Don't think God got it wrong. He knows what he is doing. It's your station in life that is the stage for your sanctification. Last truth, and this is kind of the central truth of this whole story. 
Your faith in God is all that you need. It's all that's required to live courageously for God. This is the most important. David won the battle against Goliath, not because he had faith in himself against all odds, not because he was a naive underdog with beginner's luck. David won the battle because he knew that the God of Israel, the God who had rescued him from danger over and over and over again, would not stand to be mocked by his enemies forever. God is slow to anger, and we thank him for that. But David knew that Goliath's evil bluster would not stand forever in the face of a holy God. And so he believed God had chosen him to fight courageously in that moment. A thousand years later, the son of David would also take his stand against evil, hearing vicious mockery the entire time. Like David, he was a shepherd who put on or who put his own body on the line for his sheep. But unlike David, he knew that in order to save his sheep, he would have to be tortured and killed. He was certain. He would have to become the Passover lamb whose blood would atone for the sins of the people. And yet because he was also a good shepherd, he didn't run away when the wolf was closing in in the form of a hammer and nails. He was full of faith, fully obedient to the voice of his father in the face of imminent death, and he looked beyond the grave to see victory that was coming. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured, he fought, he stood, he obeyed. For the joy of new life, of resurrection, of all the rescued saints, you and me included, gathered around the throne. For that, for you, he endured. Friends, the world will tell you all day long that the way to be saved the way to victory is to believe in yourself. The example of David, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, tells us the exact opposite, that the only way to live for God is first not to have faith in yourself, but to have faith in God. And it, you know, your problem, my problem, isn't just weakness. It's not just our limitations. It's not just our humble or our frustrating, difficult circumstances, whatever they are. Our problem according to Scripture, is that we are already dead. We come into this world dead in trespasses and sin, separated from God, having offended the God who struck down Goliath. We stood next in line. And yet, by grace, He has given us faith. If you're in Christ, He has given you faith as a gift. Faith to believe. Faith to know Jesus to trust him and nothing else. We can see with eyes of faith that it was in my place, in your place, condemned, he stood. We sing that same song of victory that David sung that day as Goliath lay dead. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? completely defeated, not by the blood of our enemies, but by the blood of Jesus, the son of David, born in Bethlehem, witnessed and worshiped by humble shepherds, the Lamb of God, born to take away 
the sin of the world. You can put your trust in him today and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd. The good shepherd who came to gather your sheep and then to lay your life down for the sheep. Father, help us to trust only in you. Trust only in your promises, only in your ability to save us from sin and death. Lord, as we come to the table, remind us again of the victory that you won. Remind us of your tender love and mercy. Remind us that you're coming again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.